The Missouri General Assembly took a historic step last week when they called themselves into special session to potentially consider the impeachment of Governor Eric Greitens. One of the people who signed the petition was State Representative Shamed Dogan. And the Baldwin Republican has called on the governor to go for a while now. He joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about Missouri's political turmoil and the issues that the legislature will be dealing with before the special session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Merzenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today in St. Louis is... Colleague Joe Manis. And our special guest returning for the third time, the uh, Republican from Baldwin. State Representative Shamed Dogan. And just before we dive into issues, just remind our listeners uh, what district you represent and which communities it encompasses. I represent the 98th district. It includes parts of Baldwin, Ellisville, Fenton, and Wildwood. And he's a Republican... And what high school? MICDS. Okay, okay. So we've, we're all we're all set here. And he also was one of the first uh, legislators in the House to call for um, uh, Governor Eric Greitens' impeachment. Mo- to resign. Or, I didn't to, call for to, impeachment. To resign. I want to make that clear. Months ago, when, when all this stuff first arose in January. I think you you officially called for him to resign in February. Is that correct? That's right. Can you explain why? Well, it was after he'd been indicted. And I'd said in January that if the allegations of abuse um, or blackmail turned out to be true, then I thought he should resign. And once those charges were filed and we saw his response, which wasn't anything relating to the actual evidence, but he said that if someone's in your house, then you have a right to take a picture of them, even without their consent. That, in the Me Too era especially, really was what um, just sickened me. It was interesting because at that point in time, in February, there were not only a lot of Republicans who were holding off on judgment, but there were actually a lot of Democrats, including U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, who did not explicitly call for Greitens to resign. Now, many of them did after the first House report came out, and it accused the governor of doing some pretty heinous things to the woman he had an affair with. But did you did you find it notable that you actually called for the governor to resign before a, a bipartisan contingent of political figures? Did you notice that you were kind of initially a voice in the wilderness before there was more critical mass? Oh, trust me, I noticed. Uh, but to me, it's really about looking at patterns and seeing the pattern of Eric Greitens' treatment of the senators, knowing that he could be such a bully and such a jerk to state senators, um, I figured it wasn't that much of a stretch to believe that he could do that to a powerless woman tied up in a basement. Okay, see, now the uh, House member just sort of illustrated the political dynamics facing the governor, regardless of how the criminal case uh, follows through whatever happens. The fact is he hasn't been popular in Jefferson City since the get-go. 
because of some of the things that mm. you just mentioned. So that said, how is all of this affecting uh, what's happening in the uh, General Assembly, at least from the House side, the other stuff, the sure. other bills, the other issues? Well, that's one of the things that I don't think a lot of people recognize is that legislative activity has actually been very, very frantic. We've been more productive than we had been in the last two sessions. We still have two weeks to go, right? And we've truly agreed to and finally passed, um, I think, 34 and counting bills at this point, which is way more than we had uh, even at the end of last session. And so the legislature is continuing to work hard and continuing to be productive. It's the second floor, the governor's office, that's been really unproductive. They haven't been very engaged in the legislative process. They haven't been engaged in terms of being a leader of the Missouri Republican Party in a lot of ways. He and the whole party, which he controls, has been really focused on saving his bacon. Now, I've been hearing that there are uh, from some law- lawmakers privately who say that some of the bills that, okay, that there's a resistance to putting anything on the governor's desk right now, in part because uh, there's fear that he might use uh, what he could or couldn't do to that piece of legislation as a bargaining chip uh, to, as far as cutting deals with lawmakers for um, to be a little more sympathetic and not to go with this impeachment push. Well, I, it's illegal for people to offer things of value for someone's vote. So if the governor really is considering doing something like that, saying, if you vote not to impeach me, I'll pass your bill, that would add another layer of corruption to what he's already being accused of. Um, So I'd be shocked to find out that he was doing something like that. Now, I'm not alleging he's doing it. I'm just saying that there's talk of fear of it. I want to make that clear. And if he vetoes something like my hair braiding bill, which we did just pass in the House last week, Senate had passed it the week before, so it is going to go to the governor's desk eventually. If he vetoed a bill that was in his state of the state last year that received overwhelming support in both bodies, I don't think we'd have any problem overriding a veto of that kind of bill. Now, explain what your hair braiding bill does. Sure. Well, it started off as a hair braiding deregulation bill because right now you have to have 1,500 hours of a cosmetology license to become a hair braider for compensation in the state of Missouri. And the cosmetology schools that you go to don't teach hair braiding. So this is a very onerous regulation primarily on African-American females. So the bill deregulates hair braiding and says that instead of 1,500 hours of training, you have to watch a four to six hour long video on health and safety, essentially. And we also included a bunch of other deregulation in there of cosmetology, of barbering, and uh, something called a sunrise uh, provision saying that if the state wants to put any more burdens on professions, then they have to have the burden of proof instead of being able to regulate and then figure it out later. I'm glad we got some policy in before we talk about the the political machinations. We're going to get to that later in the show. I do want to read something that you posted on your Facebook post right right after you called for him to resign. It's a PS that I noticed was very interesting and set you apart from other legislators. Before anyone engages in conspiracy theory talk about my motives, my lack of support for the governor has nothing to do with tax credits or the Board of Education. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a tax credit skeptic, I supported the governor's efforts to reform Missouri's expensive and inefficient tax credit system, a reference to how he basically stopped the low-income housing tax credit on the state level, and I wholeheartedly support his agenda to upend the educational status quo, which denies choices to families trapped in schools that aren't working for them. 
which is a reference to the Board of Education situation. I- I'm curious, do you think that some people called on the governor to resign early because he, they were angry with those those policy proposals? No, I don't think so at all. But that was part of the pushback that you heard from the governor's supporters was that this was somehow a debate over policy or retribution over policy decisions. I didn't hear Marsha Hafner or Kathy Conway or any of those other Republicans who were out there before me calling on him to resign for those reasons. It was because they were outraged over his behavior. So let's move to the present day. And House Speaker Todd Richardson and Senate President Pro Tem Ron Richard made a historic announcement last week. And I don't use the word historic lightly, but the legislature has never called themselves in the special session before. And they're calling themselves in the special session to consider whatever recommendation comes out of the House committee investigating Greitens' conduct. This is a clip from House Speaker Todd Richardson about the rationale for making sure this special session happens pretty much immediately after the end of regular session on May 18th. In recognition of this fact, the House and the Senate agree that the committee should have the time it needs to conduct a fair, thorough, and timely investigation. This decision to go into special session means as our regular session continues, the committee will move forward with its charge to investigate and collect relevant information surrounding the conduct of Governor Greitens. The full General Assembly, however, will remain focused on what has quietly turned into one of the most successful sessions in my time here. So there were some Democrats who wanted impeachment to start immediately, and I I could see the reasons not to do that because you all need to pass a budget, and if you stopped everything to impeach the governor, and didn't pass a budget on time, you would have to go into special session anyways because there's a constitutional deadline. But what do you make of the the decision to go into special session after May 18th when it's possible the governor may be acquitted or may not be acquitted of a felony invasion of privacy charges and it could potentially change the, the calculus and numbers needed for impeachment? I don't think that the outcome of the invasion of privacy case has any bearing whatsoever on what the legislature does. Um, First of all, our standards are different. Um, You should not have to wait for a governor to be convicted of a felony uh, before you could move to possibly impeach. I mean, under that standard, you would have a Governor Harvey Weinstein or a Governor Bill Cosby up until last week or a Governor O.J. Simpson, right? Um, When people are accused of heinous behavior, It's the legislature's responsibility to look at those allegations on our own, to collect information, to collect as many facts as you can about that alleged behavior, and then to decide if it meets the criteria for impeachment set out in the Constitution, not whether they're convicted of a felony. Now, I said on Twitter after I saw 138 signatures that impeachment, which means basically sending it to the Senate and and having the Senate pick judges— Apparently, Senator Rob Schaff has has found that the language in the Constitution may actually mean that the House impeaching throws him out of office, although I have my questions about that. Um, 82 votes is not necessarily hard to get when all you need is 35 out of, out of 114 Republicans to go with the 47 Democrats. Others have said, though, that if, as I mentioned before, events change, it could be more difficult than 99%. What's kind of your feeling about how your caucus uh, would respond to a possible impeachment vote right now? Well, it depends on what the articles of impeachment look like. And that's something that we do not know at this point. Um, That's one of the reasons the committee was given more time 
to do further investigations as well as to draft either articles of impeachment or censure or whatever punishment that they believe is appropriate for the governor. Um, I think they want to be able to have time to complete their work. And then those of us who are going to be charged with making a decision on consequences, um, we have to be able to evaluate the evidence, a lot of which we've seen, but some of which we haven't, evaluate that evidence based on what these charges are and see if the charges um, meet uh, those standards that I've mentioned before, the standards for impeachment or the standards for censure. Yeah, in fact, that's what I was going to ask. Particularly if the governor, let's say, ends up being acquitted on the uh, invasion of privacy charge, is there a possibility that the, that the House might step back from impeachment and go with something like censure instead? I mean, what what sort of feeling are you, are you getting from what you're hearing? I don't think so, because there are just so many issues of misconduct and impropriety and lying here. Um, that's the first one that came to light to the public. Um, since then, you've had the mission continues, which also resulted in a felony charge. That criminal case hasn't even begun yet. So the timetable there could be very long. You also have the investigation into whether or not the governor misused a grant payment that he received from Washington University for uh, political purposes, paying a political staffer with a grant you receive. You also have the confide investigation, which is being reopened. You also have, I mean, there's just so many issues here that the governor's alleged in misconduct while in office. That's another important thing is because there's a provision in the Constitution about misconduct in office. And it appears that there are pretty serious things that he may have engaged in since being sworn in. And And that's a really important point. Because he signed a consent order that apparently had false information in it while he was governor, that seems to be a more firm pretext to impeach him than the invasion of privacy stuff, which happened well before he was governor. Is that why it was so important to let the committee do its work and suss out the mission continues aspect so it could be, as Joe mentioned on a previous show, the the firmer pretext for impeachment to stick, basically? I, I think they decided to investigate the facts, and those are the facts that they were able to discover. And when you look at the facts of the entire Greitens campaign, from the beginning, the governor was looking to hide the source of where his contributions were coming from. Um, so the dark money that we've been talking about for a long time, even though he said he was going to be super transparent with his donors. To us. Yes. He said that to us. I just want to make that clear. Continue. Even though he talked about transparency with respect to his donors and transparency in government. Um, and by the way, when was the last time he held a press conference? Um, just all of these things that he promised from day one of the campaign he was undermining them and not acting in that way from day one of the campaign. So it lays out a pattern of behavior since then that has continued since he's been office. Now, just playing devil's advocate here, the Michigan continues stuff has been kind of looming in the background since right before the election, actually. And he signed that consent order with Missouri Ethics Commission, which, to explain quickly to listeners, in which he acknowledged using the mission continues donor list, although it was kind of blur- blurry in the order on how he got it, but um, but there is some concern that there was some st- inaccurate stuff in it. But he signed that back in April 2017. Is there a particular reason why do you think that not only uh, Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley is a fellow Republican, but also the General Assembly? It didn't appear that there was a lot of focus on this, 
until after the stuff in the basement broke, and then everybody started looking at everything. Uh, I'm just kind of laying that out there. What What is your thoughts? Well, when you have a new governor coming in, um, they get a honeymoon period, and it would have been very difficult without any other information coming forward to see people moving on something that at the time looked like just a minor infraction, but it was really just the tip of an iceberg relating to how his whole campaign was run, relating to how he was paying campaign staffers. I mean, all these other issues that have been uncovered by this investigation, um, you probably wouldn't have been able to get the political will to do such a deep dive investigation into a governor that had just been sworn in um, without something else happening. I do want to talk about a side issue that is a bit wacky, but I feel actually is important, especially if Greitens leaves office. So it's come to light that Al Watkins, who's the attorney for the ex-husband who ended up revealing this affair to KMOV, received $100,000 in cash, presumably for representation of the ex-husband and possibly other clients. Uh, The reason that this should pique the interest of the General Assembly is one of the people that delivered this money to Watkins was Scott Fawn. Half of it. Half of it. The other person is Skyler, and nobody knows who Skyler is at this point. Fawn has pretty deep ties to the low-income housing tax credit community. There is an assumption that that money was essentially part of a financial plot to buy low-income housing tax credit interest and possibly others to uh, retaliate against Greitens for freezing the low-income housing tax credit program. I'm going to play a clip now from Senator Caleb Rowden, who I asked uh, before this revelation occurred why it was important to know not only who's paying the governor's bills, because as Joe has mentioned many times, we don't know who's paying the governor's bills, but also Watkins bills. I don't think the way that the governor is, is paying for some of his stuff presently is uh, above board uh, and, and certainly not transparent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you have to ask and demand the same um, sort of transparency on the other side. Uh, if, if, if we're gonna be, if we claim to be, you know, impartial and going after the, the truth, then we need to do that. So my question is somebody who is not a huge fan of tax credits. Is this something that you're interested in finding out about, even if it's after this entire impeachment process? Sure. I think uh, we need to know who was behind those payments, um, even if those payments uh, were after the fact, um, after the information came out. Um, it's still important to know if people had nefarious motivations. Now, That's another thing that I think people have gotten confused in here is that they want to defend the governor, which I get, um, but there can be bad people on both sides of an issue, right? You can have a governor who's engaged in misconduct, and you can have people who've brought that misconduct to light who've also engaged in misconduct. There's no contradiction there. And I think that the reason this matters from a public policy standpoint is if this affair was revealed in retribution for the LIHTC decision and the action was trying to essentially usher Greitens out of office and replace him with Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson, who's a big supporter of the low-income housing tax credit program. I, I'm not saying there's anything illegal about that, but there's cert- I certainly think as a legislator you would want to know that information. Um, one thing that I've, I've suggested kind of offhandedly is that the committee that's investigating the governor, which now has more time now to suss out the facts, could subpoena low-income housing tax credit developers, lobbyists, and their supporters and ask them under oath if they supplied Vaughn and Schuyler with that money. What would you think of that idea? I, I think that's something that would be entirely appropriate for the committee to look into. Um, they may not get answers. Who knows if Scott Fawn is going to come out of hiding and 
answer questions under oath. I, he is apparently in hiding right now. Now, just so some of our listeners understand, Scott Fawn is a publisher and has a couple different publications online and in print. And I and Jason have at times appeared on his um, TV show. And I, I like, So have I, for yeah, full disclosure. Yes. Okay. And I, I like Scott personally. As we said on the previous show, I, I hope that he comes out of hiding one day and provides the, the story of what really happened. I guess just more generally... What do you think this entire situation is saying about the state of Missouri and its politics? I know that may seem like a basic question, but for people that are just sort of walking into this and we're just going through all these different angles, I'm exhausted as a reporter, as, a, as an everyday citizen of Missouri who is not completely engaged in this universe on a, on a daily basis. They just may be completely bewildered by the situation. What what are your resi- what are what are some of your constituents saying and, and what do you think the broader message about this entire uh, saga should be? I think a lot of people share your exhaustion. Um, this is why it makes it even more frustrating that the governor hasn't decided to resign because if he really cared about the image of our state, um, he can't be a real effective um, front person for us trying to bring jobs to our state or trying to promote anything that our state wants to be um, in the position that he's in. If he were really public spirited or cared about these institutions like the legislature, like the Republican Party, which he just joined what three years ago um, for the sake of this campaign, um, if he cared about the image of our state, um, he would have resigned a long time ago. But I think it's pretty evident that he's not as public spirited as he said he was uh, going into all this. Well, I mean, okay, putting a lot of this aside, I mean, looking at the overall impact or not, um, we're we're now about six months, just under six months to the November election. I'm interested in your thoughts about how all this is impacting um, politics in the state, particularly for the GOP. Um, Is there so much division that things are going to be crazy going into the fall? Do you think things are going to settle down? Do you think it depends on how long all this... Uh, plays out. I'm just interested in what your thoughts are. I think it may have been Churchill who said this a long time ago about America, but he said, um, America always does the right thing. It just may take her a while. Um, I I kind of think of our party as being the same way. I think we're going to do the right thing here. It's just a matter of what the timetable looks like. And I've been super impressed by the way that Attorney General Hawley's handled this whole issue. Um, At some political risk to himself, he did come out Um, and say that these two issues were issues that he believed were impeachable. Um, He's conducted a thorough and fair investigation into a governor of his own party. Again, you don't see attorney generals do that all the time, but Attorney General Hawley's done that, um, and he's been attacked from both sides. He's had Republicans saying he's disloyal, and he's had Democrats like Claire McCaskill say, why'd you take so long, which is really unfair um, because— It doesn't matter when you do it. If you do an investigation into a governor of your own party, you should get some credit for that. How do you think this is going to impact like state legislative races? Because you're I think you're I don't know what percentage your district is. I'm sure it's like 60 percent Republican. So even if some I I think you're probably okay, but I could also see some of your constituents who defended the governor not being super happy with you. Um, Do you think this might cause the, the Republicans to lose seats? Or do you think that might have been inevitable anyways, given how many seats they had in the legislature? And there had to be a point in the timeline where they eventually lose a little bit of ground. 
I, I think the longer the governor stays, the worse it is for anyone with an R in front of their name. Um, but I think it's going to be a lot more important how people feel about President Trump and how people feel about their economic situation and how they feel about foreign policy. I mean, if there's a foreign policy crisis um, and it's handled very well by the president, then I think that could be something that benefits um, the president's uh, approvals and uh, benefits the party. So let's shift to yet another controversy, but this time involving one of your colleagues, State Representative Bob Burns, who's a Democrat from South St. Louis County. Joe and I have known him for a pretty long time, even before he was in elected yes, office. Yes, I've known Bob for a couple decades. He, he used to work for, for Claire McCaskill. And I think he used to work for, did he used to work for Gephardt too? Yes, way back. And he also was a critical figure in the disincorporation of St. George, which was a municipality in South St. Louis County and is no longer because it's been disincorporated. He has gotten himself into considerable hot water because he has called in multiple times to the Bob Romantic show. For our listeners, I don't think we've ever talked about this show on this show. It's this, I don't even know how to really describe, can you describe it for me? There's lots of words that you can't say that he says on his show, um, including the N-word, which he likes to use repeatedly um, as a slur against African Americans who think he's racist. Gee, I wonder why they would think he's racist. Um, He also has referred to um, females in derogatory terms, to people of the LGBT community, um, he's referred to a Post-Dispatch editor as a member of the LGBT community slur, which I have no idea if uh, that person's gay or not. But even if he were, you don't talk about people that way. And uh, Representative Burns, I think, has called in on at least seven occasions. And on all of those occasions he's called into the show, he didn't push back on the slurs that Romantic has used. He didn't say, hey, man, uh, that, that stuff you've been saying, I don't agree with it. I may agree with you on veterans issues, which is why he said he's calling in. Um, and it was really, uh, I, I couldn't believe when Bob Burns came out with a statement in which he was presumably going to apologize. And he had the excuse that the appearances he had on the show had been edited. And this is actually what he said to St. Louis Public Radio, but similar to what he said to other publications. They have tapes of me talking. A lot of those tapes, I believe all of them have been spliced. So it makes me look like I might be agreeing with him, but he'll be say something racist. And I'll say, put on this veterans issue. You can tell they've been spliced together. That's what you're referring to. And I take it you don't see that as a particularly effective response. Is that fair to say? That was a false response. So I listened to that garbage show and the times that Bob called in and there were times when you would have at 17 minutes, uh, we went through the whole transcripts, right? Listen to the whole show. At 17 minutes into the show, um, he goes into a racist rant, drops the N-word lots of times. And then at 18 minutes, a minute later, Bob Burns is introduced as state representative Bob Burns, by the way. So he's kind of reflecting our institution. Um, and then he calls in and says really nice things about Romantic. And never, ever once in those seven times he calls does he say, I don't agree with your racist rants. And he's clearly enough of a listener to the show, and he can read articles the same way that everyone else can. Every article that's been published about this guy has pointed out his racist words. Now, just again, just to uh, play devil's advocate here, there have been some other uh, politicians, including some African-Americans who've called into that show. Or who have gone in. Yeah, Lewis Reed got in a lot of trouble over that a couple years ago. I don't know how you could have been ignorant of that. So... My question is, um, 
while not defending any of this, uh, does it make it more difficult to go after Burns when you've got some other um, politicians who also have either been on the show or called in or whatever who have not been called on to step down? Or should everybody who get who participates in that show? Well, to be clear, I haven't called on Bob Burns to step down. Um, I think uh, at the very least we ought to look at censuring him. And um, there's actually... Um, some discussion among Republicans and Democrats about doing a bipartisan censure resolution against him. Um, we are going to figure that out this week as we kind of walk and chew gum and skip over the cracks on the sidewalks at the same time. We're doing a lot here in the legislature the last couple of weeks, uh, but we're looking at that. And um, I think you ought to look, take a look at Lewis Reed again. I mean, he not only called into the show, he sat next to the guy on his show while he was making demeaning remarks about Megan Green. So um, he got into a little bit of hot water at the time, but I don't think this was before the Me Too movement. This was before um, a lot of other things that have changed in those last couple of years, which I think Lewis would have been under a lot more scrutiny if that had happened this year. I do want to just point out that after a lot of pressure, Lewis Reed did apologize for not pushing back harder on that show and has remained Board of Aldermen president since and is running for re-election. I do want to talk about some issues, believe it or not. We've talked a lot about politics. We squeeze the the hair braiding thing in. But um, w- one thing I want to talk about is medical marijuana. When we had you on the show for the first time in 2015, we think we asked you about this and you had expressed some support for it, which I think at the time I was kind of surprised groundbreaking. about. It was groundbreaking at the time. Because Serious. it wasn't that it was kind of unusual for Republicans to be out in front on this issue and say it's a good idea. Flash forward three years and the House has just passed uh, Representative Jim Neely's medical marijuana bill by an overwhelming margin, I think 144 votes, which means there are a whole lot of Republicans now who agree that some form of medical marijuana should be available for Missourians. First of all, like, how do you explain this shift? Because I could see like four or five years ago, you know, Republicans saying they're in favor of medical marijuana could be used as a bludgeon against them. Now I think it's become kind of a stock issue among the, at least the House Republican caucus. It's a pretty breathtaking de- development. Right. And one of the to get into the weeds a little bit about <laughs> Representative Neely's bill, um, his bill started off as a bill that would be limited only to people who were suffering from terminal cancer. And I added an amendment on the bill on the floor to include conditions like epilepsy, um, to include uh, HIV and AIDS. Uh, Representative Kurtman also added an amendment to include PTSD, so you would get veterans in. Is is trachoma in there too? um, I don't remember if it was. I don't think it was. Uh, But we added a number of conditions that had been in legislation um, two years ago that Representative Dave Henson sponsored, and that bill failed spectacularly. And the turnaround from 2016 to 2018, when that bill received, with those conditions included, over 100 uh, votes, um, I think that's just indicative of how that issue's changed. I think there's been polling nationally showing that Republican voters nationwide are in favor of legalizing marijuana for recreational purposes, which I don't think Missouri's ready for that just yet. But medical marijuana is a no-brainer. I did a poll on my Facebook page, 80% 
of the respondents on that. Now, granted, that's a little bit self-selecting of an audience, but 80% of those people supported it. Every year I've done a poll on it in my district, and over two-thirds of my constituents have supported medical marijuana. So and, it's a no-brainer issue for me. And I remember, Joe, you interviewed Senator Andrew Koenig about this a while yes, ago, who's yes. a very, very conservative senator. And I think that he was also uh, amenable to it, too. So it's not... For certain yeah. uh, illnesses. And um, it, so it's not just, you know, libertarian. I would I would classify you as libertarian-leaning on some issues. I wouldn't say you're a libertarian because you're not. You're a Republican. But it seems to be cross-pollinating among a lot of different factions of the Republican Party here. And Senator Koenig's amenability to it, I think, is kind of a signal to how far this issue has come, in my opinion. Right. And a lot of the change that we've had just in the last couple of months was because President Trump came out and said he's not going to interfere in the states that have decided to legalize it for medicinal purposes. And that's something where he won a battle against Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, who hates any form of marijuana anywhere. Now, um, we very likely may have one or more uh, marijuana-related uh, measures on the ballot this November. If something passes the General Assembly, I mean, is there a hope that the governor would sign something and therefore that would sort of negate or kind of make it less uh, uh, urgent on some of these other ballot initiatives? Or, I mean, kind of how do you how do you see the thing, the whole issue shaking out over the next six months? I would have liked to have seen us take action earlier. I think you would have been able to make a pretty strong argument that the legislature had passed a bill to allow for the use, the responsible use of medical marijuana, um, and especially with the conditions that I added, because I think if you had a bill that was terminal cancer patients only, that's not going to stop any of the people who want to try and get these initiatives on the ballot. That being said, they've already turned in the signatures now. I don't think you're, there's any way to stop those initiatives at this point. This is a, actually a clip from Jack Cardetti, who's the spokesman for New Approach Missouri, one of, I think, three or four initiatives yes. that have been trying to get on the ballot. This is actually in January, but I asked him basically, why not just go to the legislature and not deal with the onerous process of, of going through initiative petition uh, situation? This is what he had to say. Obviously, the easier, easier and cheaper way to do that is through the legislature. Unfortunately, um, there just isn't the support in the General Assembly to get that done, and in particular in the Senate, where leadership is clearly opposed to this issue. I could see a lot of benefit to the legislature doing this on their own through statute, because once you pass a constitutional amendment, I think it's going to be very difficult to change sort of some of the uh, very important details, like how much it, medical marijuana is taxed, where that money eventually goes, some of the uh, regulations as far as like who can use it. But on the other hand, I, I think Cardetti is correct that there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of support to pass Representative Neely's bill in the Senate. Uh, what do you kind of make of this dichotomy, which is may seem like inside baseball, but is actually kind of important for what ac ends up actually getting passed? Well, there's two things going on here. One um, is the fact that a lot of us who support medical marijuana, who are Republicans, have been making that argument to other Republican legislators for the last three years, saying that if you don't like what we're trying to do legislatively, you're going to hate a constitutional amendment or you're going to hate any ballot initiative a lot more because it's going to be even less restrictive. So there's that. And then there's the second thing, um, which is really the fact that I don't like 
um, writing policy into our constitution all the time. I think it's way too easy for us to pass constitutional initiatives um, that the legislature can't then reform if it turns out to be a terrible idea. Um, So I'd like to see us look at changing the parameters of what you have to do to get a constitutional amendment passed. So another issue, right to work. Do you think that the legislature will move it from November to August? We're talking about the referendum here to block the law that was passed last year. Go ahead. Right. That's already going to be on the ballot one way or the other. And I think the legislature um, is likely to move that uh, to August. And I think that there are going to be some support. Excuse me. I think there are going to be some opponents of right to work who are going to cry foul over this and say, you know, let's put it in November. I mean, implicitly, what they're trying to say is that they're going to get a bigger turnout for Democratic candidates. I, I mean, well, either way, you have a bigger turnout in November, regardless. But I, I mean, the counter argument that I would put forward is if you move it to August, it doesn't make it more difficult to pass. I would argue it actually make it easier to pass because it's easier to mobilize a core group of supporters in an August primary, hypothetically, than November when there's a whole bunch of other things going on. What's kind of your feeling about the political dynamics of this? Because there's, let's let's be clear here, political dynamics are ripe in this decision either way. But right. Continue. And I think that for people who support uh, right to work, um, we want to see what the legislature did to try and make Missouri a right to work state. We want to see that succeed. Um, and so I, I think the likelihood of it succeeding are probably the same, regardless of whether it's in August or November. Uh, but you made a good point that for those who want to uh, try and pass this and try to stop what the legislature did, they would probably be better off if we put it in August, honestly. Well, I have a theory, and I don't want to get too far afield, but I really think that if it's on the August ballot, it's going to have a major impact on the county executive primary. It, That's just a thought. It could. And I just also want to put this forward. Jay Nixon, Governor Jay Nixon, moved a lot of initiatives that the legislature put on the ballot presumably with one ulterior motive of boosting Republican turnout in August as opposed to November. I didn't hear a lot of Democrats complaining about those moves, even though it likely helped them. But Well, actually, I think it helped Republicans. In many of those cases, the stuff did pass. I mean, the Republican angle of it. And in some ways, that Democrats did get hurt by it. I always thought that Nixon's aim was never really achieved most of the time. Yeah, so I just want to make that clear, and, and I hate engaging in whataboutism because that is an example of it, but those are the facts. Tax cuts, which was going to be the primary topic of conversation in this legislature until the governor's woes, there there does seem to be, there has been some movement in both houses on tax cuts. I mean, I think the House, did they end up passing? Uh, we passed uh, Representative Elijah's heart. Elijah Harris tax cut. And, That's then, right. and then the Senate, I think, initially approved uh, Senator Eigel's tax cut bill. And I think that they actually did approve something that Andrew Koenig did, did as well. What do you think the chances of something getting done on that issue happening by the end of session? See, I'm not uh, a tax expert. I haven't been involved in those debates as much. Um, I do know that I think when the federal government passed a substantial tax reform, that may have slowed down some of the impetus for state reform, ironically enough, because I think a lot of legislators are taking kind of a wait-and-see approach. Let's see how that all shakes out before we do something uh, equally uh, impactful at the state level. Do you think that um, the governor's troubles, even if the fact that this legislation is not parroting what he proposed eventually, does that make it 
a more difficult sell, especially among Democrats in the Senate who may be like, wait a minute, we're not going to pass this massive tax cut changes when we're about to impeach a governor, hypothetically. Do you think that that may end up having some impact in the last couple weeks of session? It could, but it's not like a tax cut is something that Eric Greitens came up with. You know, this is kind of uh, par for the course for Republican legislators, right? We get elected to cut taxes and cut the size of government. Um, And one of the other concerns that I think people have is that taxes, uh, tax reform in Missouri does have to be revenue neutral. We can't deficit spend like they did with the federal tax cut. And so if you're going to cut income taxes substantially, you're going to have to raise either taxes or fees elsewhere. And you've gotten a lot of conservative groups, Americans for Prosperity has come out and said that they opposed Senator Igel's tax cut, which was kind of a surprise because of the tax increases that it would have resulted in. So I think you're going to have the legislature, maybe the House, maybe the Senate can pass their own versions, but it's going to be hard for us to agree on something this year. I, I do want to talk about one other ballot initiative, and that is the Clean Missouri Initiative, which I'm not sure if you've studied carefully, but it, I does, have. it, it, ha- it involves a, a multitude of things that I think you've been pushing for, with one big exception, which is the change in the redistricting process. Now, I want to make something clear for our listeners, because it has been written about that currently the state legislative districts, which would be the only thing affected by Clean Missouri... Somehow legislators have a role in in crafting those. Now, legislators can go to the bipartisan commission and make their case. They can go to the appellate judges if the bipartisan commission deadlocks and make their case. But legislators do not draw their own districts for, for the Missouri legislature. It's either done by a bipartisan commission or judges. People should know that because people have been spreading erroneous information that said that legislators draw their own districts. Well, to be fair, though, legislators, and I'm talking both parties here, can often have influence on these commissions. And, uh, I mean, in some cases, I mean, there's former members on them. But, yes, they don't, like, just sit there. They, I mean, it's not like the, I mean, the General Assembly does craft the congressional districts. Yes. It's right. not the same for the um, legislative And, and then you know what? The Bipartisan Commission can ignore those recommendations because yes, there, were, can, about, there but... were about 50 House members that were put into the same district. So long backdrop, but I want to hear your opinion on this, this because I think this could end up be, if it gets on the ballot, being one of the most important things that is, that are vote, that's voted on this year. That's right. And Clean Missouri is an effort that's funded by a lot of leftist groups. And it's a pretty blatant attempt to destroy and to wither the power of the Republican Party in the state of Missouri because uh, it uses a pretty complicated formula based on the results of a few past uh, statewide elections. And it says that whatever the average percentage that the parties received in those elections, that's the makeup of the state legislature. Um, that is gerrymandering taken to a whole new level. And so um, under some of the estimates I've seen, we would be required to actually have a Democrat majority legislature in the state of Missouri, despite the fact that um, the voters have overwhelmingly voted for Republicans to control the state legislature, both in the House and the Senate, by veto-proof majorities. And so in order to get gerrymandered districts to get a Democratic majority, um, and this is something else that this initiative does, is it make sure that being a contiguous district is no longer uh, an important criteria. So you could have a district that, you know, Representative Bruce Franks, for example, represents downtown St. Louis. He could have a district that goes from downtown St. Louis, snakes down the Mississippi River, covers South St. Louis County, covers Jefferson County. 
because where else are you going to pick up enough Democrats to make a majority? I will just say, though, there, there is aspects of clean Missouri that says you have to protect minority-majority districts. And Representative Frank's district, I believe, is a majority black district. Right. So, and it's actually, overwhelmingly black now, and it would probably be 50.1% black. Yeah. And, but I think I'm just going to play devil's advocate because the clean Missouri people may point to some Republicans that support it, like Rob Schaff, Jim Lemke, former Senator Bob Johnson, as an example that this does have some Republican support to it. And I would also just add that there are aspects of the state redistricting, redistricting process which probably aren't great, like the fact that when it does get thrown to judges, nobody knows why they came up with those decisions. Um, the fact that it, these commissions always deadlock, and there is certainly, as Joe mentioned, some influence about what to do. Could you make an argument that there are things you could change about the state legislative redistricting process. And also, what would you make about the Republicans that are supporting this? Well, I think your your point at the outset, Jason, the one that state legislators do not currently draw their own districts right now, that's the one that you really need to hammer home with people. Because I think in a lot of states where they've had redistricting reform, that has been the case, where legislators got to draw their own districts, and you would never see people who were drawn into the same district before. It was just about incumbent protection. And so what those states have done has been to make their redistricting more like what Missouri already has, which is a bipartisan or a nonpartisan commission. This takes redistricting and puts it in the hands of one single person, a state demographer, which nobody else has, and it gives that person the power to draw those districts. And again, it draws them by this weird criteria where you're taking these statewide elections where you'd be taking Jay Nixon's landslide victories and Claire McCaskill's big victory in 2012 and give that more precedence than the fact that every two years since, I believe, 2002, voters have voted overwhelmingly for majority Republican legislatures. We are planning on having somebody from Clean Missouri on this show to go through this initiative because I do think we need to get into some of the finer points because one of the things I've really objected to throughout this from both Republicans and supporters of clean Missouri is the conflation of the congressional and the state legislative redistricting process. It may seem like an arcane thing, but they're so different. And one has legislators drawing congressional districts and the other one doesn't that I don't think it fairly explains what actually is done without making that important point. There, and just one more thing about Clean Missouri is that I think there's other parts of this that are kind of the Trojan horse. The things that Rob Schaff supports, like uh, reforming campaign finance, cleaning up dark money, those are the things that they're going to get voters to focus on and to say, oh yeah, well we support cleaning up those issues. But then they're sneaking in this redistricting as almost an afterthought. Which I think is it's arguably the most important aspect of this. So. Any final thoughts before we let you uh, go to Jefferson City? We, we went through a lot. This is an unprecedented time in Missouri. I want to give you a couple minutes to reflect on the last few months. Sure. Well, it's, it's something that uh, none of us would have wished on the state or on the legislature to have the governor going through all these turmoils and to have the legislature um, have some of our best talented people like Jay Barnes and like uh, Sean Rhodes and like Don Phillips and like Gina Mitten taken out of the legislative process, at least when they're doing this committee investigation. Um, but it was something that once that information was brought to light, we couldn't have not investigated it. 
On that note, we want to thank the representative for taking time out of his busy schedule to be with us today. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the representative on Twitter at... At Dogen, the number four rep. You will succeed. Have a great week, everybody. <laughs>